I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Hey, Katie. Hi, Michael. How's it going? It's good. I'm sleepy for a Saturday. Me. I'm sleepy. Me too. Yeah. How's oh. it been going? This week is bananas. I don't know how you feel about it. I feel like it's bananas. I finished production managing an international festival at 2 a.m. on Sunday and at 11 a.m. Monday was in Bozeman, Montana mm-hmm. and had first rehearsal on Wednesday. That's a lot of travel. It's That's many time zones. I am now in mountain time. And now you're in so mountain we are, time. We are now three time zones across the United States between you and Jen. That's quite the math problem sometimes, too, when we're talking to each other. It's like, wait, we can do it what time? We have to find like a three span, kind of a three hour window, but not. It's weird. Time travel's weird. It is. Um, I was listening to a great podcast today about the like invention of time zones mm-hmm. and how before there's this weird period where like, clocks are accurate enough to notice the difference between like noon in philadelphia and noon in pittsburgh but where we hadn't settled on time zones yet Mm. so that like there was like railroad time which sort of everyone agreed on but then there was your local time and your local time was like 15 minutes ahead of railroad time what that hurts my head i don't i don't i couldn't live in that world i don't think no, I think there's a pretty clear reason why we stopped living in that world pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. Somebody was like, we got to organize this stuff. Some type A in charge was like, this exactly. is too much for me. I don't like this world. And so we got time zones, mm. which is now continuing to bedevil the three of us. So when when did they start then? Um, ooh, ooh, I literally listened to this 20 minutes ago, so I should know. It's like a... Century. It's an eight, Give me a century. It's a, it's, a, it's a 19th century thing. Okay. Um, sort of with the rise of mass railroad travel because all of a sudden if you have everyone's if your railroad schedule is in everyone's local time you have to tell people that like shrewsbury is like seven and a half minutes ahead of london and then like exeter is like nine minutes ahead of london and all of a sudden you're like i can't keep any of this straight anymore let's just all be on london time or something like that yeah wow of course because it's the british and it's the 19th century thanks jen 1883. 1883. <laughs> <laughs> Little factoid coming in. I like it. Yes. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Who are you doing today? Somebody fun? Should we talk I about am. more stuff before we... Um, just for the listeners, um, all three of us were talking about Game of Thrones before we started, which we're going to have to talk about next week when it's actually over. We can compress about it. And this will be a very quick pop culture podcast for a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in the There's meantime... Like some- so much happening this week in the in the popular culture There's so much there's um, so much but yeah yeah so no, you're... in the meantime yeah i actually have like some like a happy kind of upbeat one to do oh and you're um, going first maybe we should switch because mine is mine's not well the way i'm you could tell by my tone i don't know <laughs> it's up to you should we end on an upper I, I mean, I feel like that's generally better for the people. But... I should go first then. <laughs> Just because okay, of the way great. I'm going to tell it. Sorry, everyone. Um, but it has to do with a lot of politics that's been happening this week, which if you're listening, we're recording this um, May 18th. 
right? That is correct. Yeah. Time zones, days, I don't even know anymore. Um, But, uh, yeah, do you care if we switch? Can we, like, do you want to... Go for it. Okay, great. Because mine has to do with um, maybe some rights that are going away right now in our country. And I feel like I wanted to talk about it. Perhaps specifically in certain states with which we have special connections. Another one every day. Another state every day. So some that I care about very deeply and some that I've never lived in, but I still care about very deeply. Because life sucks right now for uh, women. And women in need of services that are guaranteed and as anyway whoa we'll talk about it in a minute michael i just it's very real like i'm hmm, i felt very overwhelmed all week by it yeah where it's just like this is a reality in my country right now how do i put those together and i think back to all the like juvenile arguments i had about the issue of pro-choice um from a Catholic background where we were indoctrinated to think what the faith wanted us to think and that's their right. You know, they were programming the school like they were justified, I think, in teaching what they wanted to teach, but at the same time, like, the damage it did to get me to feel how I actually truly feel about it. It took too long, in my opinion. Because mm-hmm. um, I had one way of thinking for a long time. But anyway, we're going to talk about a really lovely person in this fight for, I don't know, I hate everything that it's called women's health, but even then I heard a really good argument the other day where it's just like not only women can get pregnant, which for your older listeners out there is a weird concept, and just go with me on the gender train because we're in a new world, but like there are people who do not identify as women that can still biologically get pregnant. And so I want to be inclusive in my language because I don't want to be an asshole in 30 years who, like, wasn't thoughtful. Even though I'm not thoughtful when I'm mean to the people that I don't like. But um, on this podcast in particular. But in the meantime, it's a conscious effort on my part. So, pregnancy. What a hoot it is. Um, But we're going to talk about Jane Elizabeth Hodgson. She's born 19, uh, 1915 in Crookston, Minnesota. Her dad's a country doctor in the local community, and she, as a child, would go with him on his rounds because doctors didn't necessarily work in hospitals yet. Actually, hospital culture didn't really come about until probably right after this when like more advances in medicine and surgery, really, I think, um, makes hospitals more of a thing rather than like yeah. your country doc going around town. And I think especially in sort of rural communities, um, one of our previous podcasts um, with um, Dr. Uh, Flechette, mm-hmm. where she like was like building the first hospital in like rural Oklahoma. I know. Like, period. I love the hospital idea of a house call. Mention. And then I don't like the idea of like going back to that time to get one because like the medicine they were probably practicing was weird. Probably helpful incrementally from the years prior to it, but at the same time, 2019 medicine versus 1915 medicine. I'm going to go with 2019, but it's still pretty fun. Um, So she's pretty, uh, she's a smart lady. She clearly um, finds an interest uh, similar to her father, and she's like, medicine's for me. I'm going to do this. Um, So she gets a bachelor's degree in chemistry. In 1934, and then she gets an MD from the University of Minnesota in 1939. So she's a doctor by uh, early 
the early 40s. She uh, gets advanced training at the Mayo Clinic and starts a practice of her own in St. Paul, Minnesota. So she's a hometown girl. I think she does most of her career in Minnesota. She's born and bred. She marries a fellow doctor, Frank Quattlebaum, which is my what new a great name, new favorite last name. It's almost like a um, Dr. Seuss name. Yes, Do- yes, it is. Dr. Quattlebaum. And they have two daughters. Uh, she's a working mom in the 40s, which is kind of crazy to me. She has a private practice from 1947 to 1972, and she's actually a medical doc- director of the Fertility Control Center at a hospital from 1974 to 1979. Fertility Control Center in the late 70s. What a hot-button place to be. But um, we're going to talk now about a subject that people have very strong opinions on. And I'm, I'm going to talk about some medical stuff. So um, I will try not to be graphic in my language because I don't think that's going to serve my point. I will just try and read as clinically as I can about what's going on with these particular situations. I don't, I don't personally think it's too graphic or, you know, but I just want to be, in case you don't like this kind of subject matter, you know what's coming. So in the first phase of her career, it's the 40s. She's um, in the Midwest. She is uh, instructed and is aware that um, forced miscarriage or abortion is illegal. Uh, it is done not by doctors. Um, it is not by, do- do- I should say, it's not by done by doctors openly. Um, mm-hmm. It is a secret network of need and, uh, or what's the thing I always like to say? Um, supply and demand. Um, because there was always a supply and therefore always a demand for this procedure. And there has been since the dawn of time. Um but it's not legal in the United States of America, or it's not illegal. I mean, it's not, it's not really either or. Some places mm-hmm. it's it's demonized and everything. And culturally, it's shameful and terrible. So all of these like um, back ways of getting it done are used by women um, in every part of the country. Because mm-hmm. I think the statistics today say one in four women have had to have uh, this procedure for name a reason there's a whole bunch of statistics on it it doesn't matter the reason but for some people it does and i get that um so she's in the early 40s she's doing what she's been taught she is seeing like i cannot perform this procedure for many reasons most importantly i think for her as a young working woman is like why would i jeopardize this thing that's like so hard for other women to do is like be a doctor i'm putting a lot of Mm -hmm. words in her mouth that's not my actually how she felt. She probably just didn't want to go to jail or like lose her practice or be ostracized. Name it. Yeah. So that being said, women doctors, I mean, women would go to doctors of both genders, I'm sure. But like she found that women were coming to her with this need. They would ask in cloaked ways or, you know, ask without asking or try and, subtly um, seek out the procedure from her. I'm sure there's a layer of like, you're a woman, you understand, (laughs) please help me. And um, the other side of it is that she would get the aftermath of women who would seek out this procedure from people who were not qualified, Mm -hmm. not educated, not uh, take, have not taken a do no harm (laughs) 
philosophy, whatever, creed. So, and would do it for name a reason. But either way, it wasn't regulated. It wasn't studied. It wasn't a great way to get it done. Um, And the more desperate, the more kind of tragic those circumstances could become. So she was dealing with the aftermath of all of that coming into her clinic. So she's seeing a need that is not being met in a medical way. And she's like, this is bananas. I don't Mm -hmm. agree with this law. I don't think this law is justified. I need to save these women's lives. This is insane. I have to save this person. This is a person who needs me. And, you know, I'm I'm done with the, like, shame of it. So, in the at some point in the, I would say, mid part of her career, she's like, meh, I'm going to start performing these for various reasons. So... In April of 1970, she agrees to perform an abortion with, uh, I have read, the express interest of changing the law in Minnesota. At the Mm. time, it was only permitted to save the woman's life. So you couldn't do it just uh, because of your financial situation, which is a way of saving your life, um, or your lack of maternal instinct. Um, None of those reasons were seen as justified. But if you were in definite medical danger, um, this patient that came to her was married. She had three children at the time, and she had contracted German measles or rubella, which uh, while she was pregnant with her fourth uh, pregnancy. And the woman's life was not in danger, but when you contract rubella, which has a whole other thing. Like, that's part of the MMR vaccine, friends, which is the measles, Mm -hmm. mumps, rubella, so check yours today. Please get vaccinated. Because um, one complication that occurs of women who contract German measles is they also get ill and it's pretty bad. But um, for fetuses in the womb, it can cause a a bunch of birth defects, um, lifelong complications and consequences for that baby or death. And when the... um, When the pregnancy is compromised in that way, there are other risk factors for the mother holding them as well. Because, like, stillbirth and miscarriage have their own kind of medical issues that go along Mm -hmm. with it. So, it's a whole mess of a situation. This mother's like, I don't want this baby to have a range of devastating life uh, consequences because of this disease that was no one's fault. It's just, you know, so I would like this procedure. Um, uh, Dr. Hodgson performs the procedure in 1970. She is immediately arrested because I think she wasn't really necessarily quiet about it. She's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I did it. I did it. This law is dumb. This law is super dumb and I did it. It doesn't matter why. Love that. Also, this like weird loophole is not a reason to not provide this to a woman who clearly required it. Um, Mm -hmm. And she clearly required it because she made the judgment call about her own body. And wait, wait, wait. Are you are you saying women should be allowed to make choices about their own body? Like, I just think it's like, there's no male equivalent, and that's the problem. I that is the root like of that. the problem. There is no male equivalent. They can't understand it on a certain level because there's no male equivalent, so it seems like a special privilege instead of a right. Mm-hmm. That's what I think, because male is neutral. Yeah, 
I think that's, I'd never quite thought about it like that. That makes that's so much how sense. I feel about it on a micro level, very pointedly. And it's not really saying like you can't under empathize and understand. I don't mean it that way. I just think like the neutral is there's a man, and then I mean it's the way we deal with pregnancy. It's treated as disability leave when a woman has a baby in this country. Mm -hmm. Because we can't make a maternity clause because that alienates anybody that can't get pregnant. Rather than, like, it's different and it's still a right even though you can't have it. I know that's weird. I know that's weird for us as a country because we think everyone should have the same rights. But if you actually can't do it, doesn't mean it's not my right. (laughs) Right. Do you know what I mean? Also, you have a stake in whether I have babies or not. Not in that you get to choose whether I do, but my financial well-being, emotional well-being, maternal instinct, societal intent, like, that all matters to you because we are both people. Anyway, okay, sorry. Yeah, there's this great thing floating around on the internet, which, like, it's not the most inclusive language, but the point is very well taken, which is that 100% of unplanned pregnancies are caused by men, which is... Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, you're a part of this. Like, deeply a part of this. You're deeply a part of this. I don't know. It's just way more complicated and different per circumstance. So then you can't get out of there. Just get out of there. Just stop yeah. getting in there. Just stop. I mean, I feel like if we're going to just start passing arbitrary rules that, like, men should not be allowed to get like erectile dysfunction medicine until everyone has equal access to reproductive health. That will probably, I mean, I don't know. What's the male equivalent? Like what's the only thing you guys can do that we can't. I I mean, I think you're right that there's not really a great, I don't think there is one. They keep saying the like arbitrary, like all men should get vasectomies because they're reversible. And then there would be a no unplanned pregnancies. Um, I guess that works. But at the same time, as a woman, I do not want that. Because that feels mm. unjustifiably invasive of your personal autonomy as a human. And maybe that's the point we're <laughs> trying to make in this moment. Maybe. Oh, man. It's not for me to decide. We should know this by now. That's what's really frustrating. Where I just look at all the people in Congress or, like, in this particular state I'm living in right now. Where I was just like, come, you guys, okay. First of all, we keep blaming all the 26 white dudes that voted for it. And, like, yes, please, please blame them for a lot of it. But we have a female governor, man. And I just can't. That's what just racks me with, like, miss. I just, that's why I'm having the feelings I'm having about it, I think. Where I'm just like, not even you. Not even you can, like, bring your head around that whole thing. Like, I'm just... I don't know. I don't know. It's such a weird mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I don't know. It's such a weird issue. It's the only kind of it's. It's the only issue of its kind. I think it's so yeah. bizarre and like medical and technical and science and ugh, I don't know. I mean, it definitely it's it, exhausting. It seems like it's a it's an issue that is so deeply about what it's about. And it also feels like it's not about what it's about at all. Like it is so deeply about women's health and at the same time it is about like controlling particular groups of people and like 
yeah. using the power of the state to keep particular types of people. Yeah, because it will always oppressed. be legal in parts of this country, I think. It will always be legal yep. in parts of this country. And therefore, people of means will always be able to get them. And I, exactly. I just, I do, honestly, as a human, I do wish we didn't have to have it. I don't want them to exist, this procedure. I don't want it. Like, I don't want a world where that's great. Like, that's not... No, that is not what I'm saying. The end game for both parties, for both schools of thought, I think, is to not have them. Because that's a lot for the person going through it. You know what I mean? It's just too yeah. much. It's too much for the doctors to deal with. It's too much for the patient. It's too much. It's, like, it's such a heinous sticky situation especially the way we talk about it like there's no good answer and there's no good person um that's not true um but like because if you are doing what you think is right you still have half of the people telling you that you're horrible and wrong do you know what i mean like yeah that kind of i mean anyway people have been so open this week about talking about their experience about what they don't have a sense of shame about it, which I think is amazing and should be the way that it is. And like, but there's still oppression coming at them for it. Do you know what I mean? There's still going to be shame thrown at them. That's what I don't like. They feel no shame about it and people are still hurling it at them. Like what a waste yeah. of time. Ugh. Okay. Anyway. So where are we? 1970. Let's go back in time again. 1970. She does the procedure. She sentenced to time for a quiz, Michael. How many? What's what's her time? Um, what's her it, time for that kind of infraction? That feels like a solid Minnesota, like, nineteen seventy. Ten to twenty years situation. Ten to twenty years, yeah, yeah. Because that's how it is now, Oof. isn't it? Thirty days and a year's probation. Wow. Yeah, in 1970. You can now get 99 years. Uh, so, to be clear, we are, in fact, not making any progress on this issue. We are, in fact... And it's not even like we're trying to, like, go back to, like, pre-1970. It's like, no, we are legitimately No, we're finding our own worse. way now. We're not even taking a lesson out of the history. We're just going to make up our own stuff. So, she's like, cool, I'll take it. I'm guilty. You bet. I did it. I don't have any, like, all of these women this week, they're like, I don't I don't have any shame about that. I had to do it. This is why. It's not up to you. It's up to me. And um, her sentence was suspended pending appeal. And then um, over the course of uh, the way the courts move and how slow they were, Roe versus Wade was decided. Um, landmark trial uh, basically says that the government has no right to... Um, make abortion illegal. I don't know. That's paraphrasing. It's it's a lot more nuanced about like privacy and autonomy and bodily bodily autonomy in particular. Um, basically, her conviction was overturned and she served no jail time. So of those thirty days, she did zipperuni, which is great. Uh, she kind of takes that as her calling in a lot of ways like she advocates for the rights of women and for their bodily autonomy and their um decisions to make the best choice for their own health and um 
she, you know, founds a bunch of healthcare clinics. She puts her names on several lawsuits, not just ones she participated in, but in ones of like various state law that have to do with abortion and have to do with all of the laws that start to get passed about it. So one of mm-hmm. them was notably another lawsuit called Hodgson versus Minnesota. And it challenged a state law requiring both parents to be notified before a minor could have an abortion. Now, on the surface, you're like, that law doesn't make a lot of, doesn't make me feel anything. Like, I don't see why that's got to be such a crazy law. Um, And I don't know. I didn't do enough reading about it. Uh, In 1990, it gets all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And they upheld the Minnesota law. Five to four, and they found it constitutional because of its provision allowing patients to seek permission from a judge instead of from their parents. So there was a kind of like clause in it that you didn't have to seek out the permission of your parents. You could go to a judge for like a third party, I don't know, input. I don't know because there is, you know, child versus adult. You know, it it is a little more nuanced in mm-hmm. that way. That being said. Um, I'm sure one can quickly imagine the kind of problems that that yields of like having to have both parents present at your medical procedure. Like imagine how many, like that makes sense when everybody has two functioning parents that don't work a bunch of jobs and like love you and take care of you. But I'm going to go ahead and say that that most of America at this point in the seventies is going away from that model and maybe Both parents don't live in the same town, let alone the same state, let alone the same country. Maybe dad's not in the picture. Maybe mom's not in the picture. And then all of a sudden you're holding this person in need of this procedure Mm -hmm. up to a standard that, like, culture's not allowed. Anyway, it's gross. Yeah. So that, unfortunately, went that way. But she uh stays in practice her whole career she continues to she works for that fertility clinic that she helps run as their director um Mm -hmm. she works all the way into her 70s and she would travel from saint paul to duluth in order to provide care to women in more rural communities especially with the need for abortion in those areas like she found that as you know states would kind of localize that care to certain places or minimize it completely. She's like, Mm-mm, I'm going to, I'm going to go where my services are needed. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote a book called doctors of conscience and, um, and in 1995, it's quoted as saying, I think in many ways I've been lucky to have been a part of this. If I hadn't gotten involved, I would have gone through life probably being perfectly satisfied to go to the medical society parties, and it would have been very, very dull. I would have been bored silly. Um, so she got Love a lot that. of she got a lot out of her work, and I think helping of women from the beginning was like her main goal. I think another interesting fact about her is like in her early years, she's she also traveled a lot to developing nations, so she mm-hmm. saw both like what the poorest of the poor have to go through, but also, like, what the women in our country go through in a range of economic class. And I think that Mm -hmm. really had an impact on her. And she said um, early that a woman's place in society is directly related to the availability of abortion services, contraception, and family planning services. In country where it was illegal for those things to be provided to women, 
women were much worse off as far as their overall rights, health care, and poverty levels. It's a direct corollary. The more you can control your reproductive autonomy, the better off the entire country was. It's a sign of progress. It's a sign of momentum. So, yeah. There you go. I clearly have a lot of feelings on it. I don't know if you have a lot of feelings on it, Michael, but... Um, I have so many feelings on it. Um, it's it's kind of been, it, like, a political fight my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I don't... I... Oh, yeah. I don't... It's just, It's so daunting that we're going backwards. Yeah. And, I mean, I think at least personally for me, what I find so frustrating having also been raised Catholic is this idea that like, I mean, first of all, from like a historical perspective, like abortion is, it's not a Catholic issue. It's like a evangelical Protestant issue that Mm -hmm. for some reason in the like seventies, the right wing evangelical Protestants in the United States were able to convince conservative Catholics that they should like take it up as an issue. But before then, like Catholics didn't, it wasn't on their and on their radar. Yeah. So once I'm just like frustrated on like watching Catholicism kind of get co-opted into this thing that is like so deeply destructive to so many people and it not even being like a central tenant. It's just like this weird thing we picked up and have somehow made a thing. Mm-hmm. But also I'm just so frustrated because it's this this sort of clothing anti-abortion rhetoric and like pro-life rhetoric is really it's, frustrating because yeah. it's it ignores so much of what life is and like the fact that Alabama passed this law and then the same week like executed someone which is a total disregard for life if we're going to say that like every life is valuable um regardless of like what that situation is like those things are not logically compatible and to sort of see people try to hold those two things simultaneously or hold this like sure like fetuses have more rights than like the women whose like lives are being impacted or like children who are already born but who aren't like being offered robust social services like all of the things that like government has the power to do to make life better for people not mattering and but this one issue mattering is so infuriating yeah well what blows my mind is like the polls that they've taken of should roe v Wade be overturned it's something like 70% of people feel like it shouldn't. Like, most Americans don't think it should be an issue anymore. And it's an, it's a it's a sliver, much like the gun lobby, it's a sliver that is all of a sudden, like, that's how half of the country feels. And it's just mm-hmm. fundamentally not true. And yet they have enough political power, money, talking to the right people loud enough yeah. feisty enough it gets a lot of airtime that all of a sudden it's like a 50 50 fight and it's if people actually intellectually discuss what it means wouldn't be in favor of it because all of a sudden it becomes more personal just like there is always going to be a circumstance where this service is needed because just stuff happens you know, mm-hmm. that's no one's fault or is not, like, maliciously intended and it's not because of a higher power. It's just, like, stuff happens and you have to be able to speak to the medical need. And, yes, sometimes there's socioeconomic need, but I also like to say that if a woman's life could be 
irrevocably changed by an unplanned pregnancy. Her, like, financial well-being, future career development, or her, like, lack of ability to do it is putting two lives at risk. Yeah. And it's just so damaging that I can't quite... I mean, I know what pro-lifers say, but I just, I can't put those... I don't understand how that negates what I'm saying. Like all people who think they're right. (laughs) I don't understand why what you're saying makes what I'm saying wrong. So, like, you should just agree with me. But I, um, yeah, I don't know, man. Jen, I'd love to hear your thoughts at some point about this. I don't know if you want to share them because you don't have a microphone right now. But, yeah. So anyway, Jane Hodgson, let's get back to the woman, though. Jane Hodgson, cool cucumber, lived till about, like, 2006, I want to say. Practiced medicine into her 70s. Had uh, two daughters with Mr. Quattlebaum. (laughs) Dr. Quattlebaum. Dr. Quattlebaum. (laughs) Um, And a couple of grandkids and lived her whole life in Minnesota. She's pretty cool. She looks like a really cool, like, feisty grandma. Like, I would have liked to have her as a doctor. She seemed really neat. That's awesome. Yeah. So way to go, Dr. Hodgson. Yeah. Anyway, I'm ready for your upbeat one, so let's take a break and then do that. Sounds great. Okay, cool. I'm so ready for a happy one, Michael. Okay, so I might have misspoken a little bit when I said it was a happy one. Uh, um, I'll take the hit on that because I brought us way down. Okay, great. Well, are we ready let's be to real. jump back in? I'm ready to have a little change of focus, yeah. And then maybe we could talk about Game of Thrones to end it, because Jen is still behind and I want to, like, vicariously live through her. Okay, so, not happy, but, like, at least a little less um, politically present right now, or no? I mean, I have to say, like, there's a lot of similarities, and I kind of, I love that because we didn't plan this at all. Um, But the the woman I did this week is... uh, doctor in the 80s when the AIDS, or she's a medical researcher in the 80s when the AIDS crisis hits, um, and is one of the people responsible for um, isolating the HIV virus um, and helping to develop the first blood test for it. So yeah! it's just like, again, sort of like female medical professional like related to this very like politically charged, very depressing topic, but she's doing like good work around How weird. It. Okay, cool. Um, and the nice thing is um, she hasn't died yet, so we don't have to end on that like bit of a bummer where like... And then she, she passed died. away. Yeah. <laughs> She's like still with us, which is super exciting. Oh, that's great. Um, and I didn't realize that when I started researching her, but I was too far in by the time I f- figured that out. So I was like, great, we're just going to keep doing her. Um, so her name is Flossie Wong Stahl, although she's born Yi Ching Wong in August of 1947 um, in Gangzu in southern China. Um, this is right after World War II ends. So China is still in the midst of this pretty massive civil war between um, communist and nationalist factions who are battling for control over the country. They kind of like put a halt on that to fight the Japanese in World War II, but once the war ends, they sort of get back into it. Um, And Wong's family supports the nationalists. And for those of us who know our Chinese history, that's not going to go super well for them. Um, The communists are going to win by the early 1950s. Spoiler. I know. Sorry, friends, for those of you still (laughs) waiting for the book. Yeah. Um, and so in 1952, her family is going to evacuate. Um, a lot of the nationalists evacuate to Taiwan, which is 
how that country develops. Um, but she and her family evacuate to Hong Kong, which is still under British control at this point. Um, and so she is going to grow up there. Um, she attends an all-girls Catholic school, learns English, really excels academically. Both her parents and her teachers are going to push her to pursue science um, because of the way the British education system works. Um, and the British education system is the one they use in Hong Kong. You have to choose pretty early if you're going to take a science track or a not science track. So she basically in high school decides that she's going to sort of invest her time and energy in science. Um, and the really, the thing she points out a lot is that no one, no other women in her family had ever pursued science or any interest outside of the home, but that both her parents were still like really, really supportive of her doing that. Um, which is like a nice little gem of light in what is otherwise a podcast of parents telling their daughters not to do things. Um, and so, um, her teachers are really so impressed with her that they, encourage her to continue studying at the university level and in particular push her to apply to schools in the U.S. Um, partially because there's such a large um, Chinese and Chinese American population, especially on the West Coast, that they think it'll be sort of a good fit for her um, as opposed to trying to go to Australia or the United Kingdom, both of which have sort of robust university programs in English, but are maybe a little bit less welcoming to Chinese students at this point. Um, so that's like a really positive thing. It's exciting to see like a young Chinese woman in the 50s and 60s being like sort of encouraged to pursue science. Uh, the less great thing is that they also encourage her family to change her name so that it would be easier to pronounce for English speakers, um, which is how she ends up getting the name Flossie, which according to the stories is the name of a typhoon that had struck the region a couple of weeks earlier and her yeah. father just sort of picked it and went with it. Yeah. I have a great Aunt Flossie. <laughs> and an Aunt like, Flossie. Short for Florence. Okay. I was curious because it's mm -hmm. not an it's not a name I have ever really encountered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which when would that uh, when would that hurricane have been? Uh it was like early nineteen sixties. Yeah, so like that's yep. That's right. Wow. Yep. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Um and so in uh, 1965, now Flossie Wong is going to begin her undergraduate studies um, at University of California, Los Angeles. She's going to study bacteriology and gets her bachelor's degree in just three years because she's incredibly smart. Um, and then she's going to go on to get a PhD in molecular biology from UCLA in 1972, which for those of you counting at home... Um, that is four years to get a PhD, which is just like an absurdly fast she's got a, time to get a PhD. She's got things to do. She is not messing around. Um, so after she finishes her PhD, she's going to go to UC San Diego for a year to do postdoctoral work. Um, but in 1973, she's going to head to the East Coast um, to start a job at the National Cancer Institute, which is one of the National Institutes of Health based outside of D.C., um, she, in part, gets a job there because her husband, um, who is also a medical researcher, gets a job there. And so they managed to get a joint appointment, which is mm -hmm. kind of cool. The other really exciting thing is in all of the biographies I was reading about her, they never once talk about her husband, um, which is just like a really refreshing change of pace. Um, mm -hmm. You kind of, you figure out that she's married because she's got a hyphenated last name, but that's really the only clue. 
Um, but there's this really wonderful um, transcription of an oral history she does with the National Institutes of Health, where she, in part, you know, because she's a human being, talks about her her personal life a bit. Um, and that's sort of the only mention I was able to find of her husband, which is just, like, really cool. And I appreciated that deeply. Um, and so she goes to the National Cancer Institute, um, and there she's studying retroviruses, which are these kind of nasty viruses which use the DNA of their host organism to replicate, um, and which makes them really, really challenging to treat. Um, and they're sort of this big new hot topic in the 70s. Most people, though, are focused on retroviruses in primates because there's sort of this sense that, like, human retroviruses don't really exist. There have been a couple of sort of, like, red flags where, like, people are like, oh, is this a thing? Only to figure out later that, like, something was contaminated or a study had been done incorrectly. And so there sort of was this sense that, like, human retroviruses aren't really a problem, but they're an issue in primates, and so we can study this, and maybe it'll be applicable to humans in the future, but for the time being, it's not really something we're worried about. Um, I think you kind of becomes know a little <laughs> more important soon, doesn't it? It does. Um, Isn't that how they say that HIV got transferred into humans? Yeah, so... Um, you're getting a little ahead of me, but that's sorry, great. We'll sorry, jump right into it. Sorry, um, sorry. Yeah, so in the um, so in the early 1980s, um, the CDC publishes this report on five gay men who died after becoming infected with a supposedly harmless fungus. What um, year? And in, in 1981. Oh, okay. Um, and in sort of the, throughout the next year or so, there's a number of more reports popping up of sort of otherwise healthy young gay men dying suddenly of these rare diseases in New York and in California. Um, and in 1982, the New York Times is going to publish this groundbreaking article that sort of looks at a lot of these cases um, and particularly the sort of spread of this new as of yet unidentified autoimmune disorder, um, which is initially called gay-related immune deficiency or GRID, but is pretty quickly renamed um, AIDS. And that is sort of the beginning of the recognition of the AIDS crisis in the U.S., um, although AIDS has been present in the U.S. Um, since the early 1970s. Um, it's just not really recognized as a disease because it presents so many varied and different symptoms. Um, but yeah, it starts in West Africa as a um, disease in primates, and then sometime in the 1920s, um, it's a little, it's still sort of debated how, but the disease makes a jump from primates to humans um, and then spreads pretty rapidly in um, what is then the Belgian Congo, um, gets transmitted to Haiti in the 50s and 60s, and then in the 60s and 70s gets transmitted to the United States. Um, and it's this very quickly becomes recognized as this like huge public health crisis. Fascinating. So how early did it go from uh, apes to humans? They think, they think in the 1920s is when it really? started. Yeah. Um, and it what started changed this... there? I know we can't go back in time, but I wonder why it left. Yeah, so there's a, a couple of really interesting theories. The The ones that when, when I was reading that seemed sort of the most reasonable to me is that sort of the period where colonialism in the Belgian Congo really sort of hits its high point. And so you have this really rapid, very forced transition of huge parts of that country to sort of an industrialized 
um, plantation economy. So you have thousands of residents being sort of forced into what are effectively like labor camps where the sanitary conditions are really awful and they're often being fed what's called bushmeat, which is sort of any animal that can get killed and sort of chopped up for its meat, which in the Congo often meant primates. And so you'd have people eating infected meat. Um, there was also sort of mass, the, the deeply ironic part of it is there's these mass um, vaccinations going on at the time, but of course they don't really understand how, or alternatively they don't care about how infectious diseases are spread, so they don't sterilize the needles in between injections. And so you have these, again, sort of mass forced vaccinations, which are supposedly to help, you know, keep diseases down, but at the same time end up actually spreading a lot of bloodborne pathogens because they're not being sterilized between uses. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. So there's like a lot of... Time to be alive. Right. There's a lot of sort of like a confluence of really nasty factors mostly related to European imperialism that all sort of come together in the 1920s in the capital of the Belgian Congo. And that's sort of where people think that this, that the disease not only jumps from primates to humans, but that the really um, contagious strain sort of develops and incubates there. Mm. So yet another thing to add to the joys of Western imperialism in Africa. (laughs) You slid that in there, didn't you? (laughs) As you soup your tea. Oh, it should, we should be clear. As I sip my wine in my coffee mug, oh, it's just no let it be tea. And guest housing. It looks like um, tea. Yeah. Yeah. What a hoot that was. What a period yeah. to be alive. Um. Okay. So where are we now? So we're in the early '80s. Um. The AIDS crisis is really starting to gain a lot Getting of going, yeah. public attention. Um. At the same time, there's the sort of incredibly lackluster government. Excuse me, government response to it. Uh, what do you mean, large... Michael? Well, so here's the funny thing. Is what are you going to say about St. Ronald Reagan? Um, that he is sort of notoriously slow in responding to is this that crisis. All? Yep. Um, Does he ever that... say it? I don't know. I have to admit I was not particularly interested in like opening up that can of worms because there are people who've like, said That's fair. much more and better than me. But... Yeah. The thing I hadn't recognized is that, like, obviously there's this huge stigmatization of the gay community because the disease spreads really rapidly there, but also that the Haitian community in the United States um, is really highly stigmatized around it, um, in part because the disease um, sort of got the transmission pattern is from Africa to Haiti to the United States, Mm -hmm. um, but also just because America wasn't as super racist. And so... Mm -hmm sort of looking for people to blame um, the CDC initially comes up with these like four groups and among those groups are homosexuals and Haitians just like blanket like an entire nationality of people is somehow mm-hmm. for some reason more susceptible to this disease mm-hmm. which is not how that works and yeah just... I'm now remembering which I don't know if we want this in the actual podcast or not but I'm now realizing like I got taught about this phase of history in science class more particularly growing up with once again catholic school for context and i now i'm thinking of it of this lens of like these teachers had to tell us in catholic school um 
about the AIDS crisis, but through, like, a science lens, because we're learning about in biology and, like, how disease spreads and, like, blah, da, 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 da. But at the same time, because gay men were predominantly affected, that, in turn, forced this Catholic school to teach us about gay sex (laughs) in a way that I don't think they understood that that's what was happening. Or, like, that's, like, one fallout of this. Like, they had to teach us, like, why was it that community? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not just (laughs) because... the virus found them and like one you know it wasn't that it was like what actions were being taken to like cause that spread and like the ignorance around safe sex and that community in particular along with like the cultural time of like free love and stuff so anyway i'm just now thinking about the like unintended consequence of that whole saga and i'm like hmm what a weird little what a That's weird little kind of a, step of progress that wasn't intended, but happened anyway. You know what I mean? It's kind of incredible. That kind of thing. Like, it was all like, under the guise of, like, it was wrong and don't... They didn't, like, dwell on it or anything. And it was probably a lot of misinformation, because I doubt they did research. But I don't know. I was just thinking about that. <laughs> made me laugh. Just trying to be, yeah. like, a Catholic school teacher. Be like, uh, I don't know how to talk about this. Oh, no. <laughs> I have to tell a bunch of 15-year-olds about it. The most mature of groups, really, oh, to yes. learn about anything. So, yeah, anyway. it's funny now that you said. I don't really, I don't remember learning about it in school that much. I think in part because like the way, and I don't know how intentional this was, but the way we handled modern American history in high school was we did 1950s through the night to the early 2000s in these like student-led projects. We where... also did that in our mm-hmm. history class. Yeah, so in our history class, we yes. called the Decades Project. I did 70s. Spent, What'd you do? Um, I did the 50s, I think. Nice. Um, but I remember it, I remember at the time sort of thinking a little bit about it, but now reflecting on it, I'm like, that is both like a really crafty way to handle the sort of more politically charged yeah. decades rather than having <laughs> yeah. to set an original curriculum. Mm-hmm. You're just like, oh, we're just going to let the students handle it. But also I feel kind of cheated and a little failed because I'm like, great, I actually was given like very little teaching about some of the decades that have most profoundly impacted yeah like 60s on united states has been a lot of self-taught exactly and like a lot a lot happened in the last 50 or 60 years Mm -hmm. like so much yeah i don't think i was really taught well about vietnam until college and even Mm -hmm. then it was rough yeah, and I, like, didn't take any American history classes in college, which I now deeply, deeply regret. Yeah, um, just, just watch all of Ken Burns and you're fine. You'll get <laughs> I it. Issue, I have such issues with Ken Burns, but now is not the time to go into Whoa, this. really? <gasps> um, Hot take! It's, what? It's this th- he so, seems like, like your guy. Really? I mean, so part of it is the Ken Burns effect um, for a certain generation of iPhoto was the default, like... <laughs> you're going to play through your photos thing. And that bothered me so much because you have to turn it off individually. What a niche thing. What? So that, so that, that did not endear me. You just don't like a slow zoom. Or you just hate a slow zoom. Because you couldn't pick where it did. So that just the default was it would like slow zoom on a part of the picture you didn't care about. That's not his fault. That's Apple's fault. Fair. Reason two is like, it, it's, it's like, academic historians being curmudgeons in a way but also like making a point of like a lot of the way he presents information is these sort of like grand populist pro-american sweeps that like maybe don't dig as deeply into some of the issues as one might like oh so like not that he's like 
Which, which civ- series are you his, talking about in particular? His Civil, his civil War series in okay. particular is the okay. one that, like, okay. gets a lot of flack. Um, mm-hmm. And I have not I have not watched any... Like, I've not watched his baseball one, which, like, obviously has, like, less potential for being politically charged. And I have not watched any of the more recent ones. Um, I think Vietnam's worth watching. Okay. I will take... I will, take I will say that, that because the thing that I noticed from it was that he genuinely interviews everyone. Mm-hmm. I know we're on a tangent, Jen. I'm sorry. He genuinely interviews everyone in that conflict. He interviews North Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, soldiers that were very um, pro-action, soldiers that Mm -hmm. were drafted, people that didn't go, people that were against it, uh, women who were in the villages, uh, politically active in Vietnam, like everybody. That's very Everybody. Cool. People that change their opinions as they go through. People that, like, go from this way to that. It's just, like... Yeah. I, okay, I, okay. Anyway. I'll say that about that one. Give that one a shot. The though. Prohibition one good is good, too, because the whole context of why we went into Prohibition, you're kind of like, yeah, that makes sense why that passed. Mm. We were so drunk before 1919. Yeah, very true. Just all the time drunk and that's not to say that changed but like you can understand why people wanted to like do something about it um i digress but interesting i was yeah sorry okay where were we uh we were in the 1980s oh we're talking about ronald reagan anyway great let's roll um so sort of with the with the recognition of the aids epidemic all of a sudden her research about retroviruses goes from being this sort of like academic thing to being this thing that's like crucially important to public health in the United States. Um, And in particular, she and her lab are doing a lot of the research around the HIV virus. Um, Mm. When they start, they don't know that that's what they're looking for. But she has a sense that the cause of AIDS is a retrovirus of some sort. Um, And so their lab is getting tons and tons of tissue samples from people um, who've either been identified to have the disease or have died from the disease and are trying to look for similarities, trying to identify like what might be the cause of it. Um, and eventually their work starts zeroing in on T cells, which are the white blood cells that help fight infection mm-hmm. um, and which are often sort of the site of um, an HIV infection. You can kind of use someone's T cell level as an indicator of whether or not they're infected. Um, and so she starts doing this research really seriously in 1981 and by 1983, um, her and her lab identifies the retrovirus, which they initially call HTLV3, not a super catchy name. Um, and at the same time, a French team independently identifies a virus that they name LAV, which turns out to be the same virus and they're both what is now called, um, HIV or human immunodeficiency viruses. Um, and so the kind of like the the amazing part of this very sad story is that like she's working at the NIH, which is this like government funded research facility. And in an age where like the federal government is doing almost nothing about the AIDS epidemic, like this federally funded research facility is doing the kind of groundbreaking research to identify the disease. Um, and then in ni- by 1985, um, she's cloned the virus, which means that they've sort of developed a f- genetic map, which in turn means you can develop a blood test for it. And that's sort of the, the first huge step yeah, in that's a game changer. combating the crisis is being able to like accurately diagnose people. Well, and 
And if you can clone the virus, can't you then work on a way to vaccinate against it? Yeah. So you can so that... duplicate it and try and modify it to become a vaccine. Yeah, and that was the thing I found really fascinating was that the goal was initially to try to make an HIV vaccine, mm-hmm. but the reason it's immunodeficiency viruses is because sort of like the flu, there's a bunch of different strands of it. Yeah. Um, and they're so genetically different that pretty quickly they realized that there wasn't really an effective way to make a vaccine for it because yes. you couldn't combat all of the various different strains of it, um, but that you could um, develop different types of um, antiviral drugs to use on it. Um, and in the early 2000s, um, this new drug called PrEP comes out, which um, is a prophylactic drug. Oh. So it's meant to prevent you from getting um, HIV. And it's, as those drugs go, like remarkably effective, I think it's something like 90% effective um, or even higher when properly used. Um So in a way, it's kind of this incredible story where the medical community sort of identifies very quickly the cause, the tests for it, um, and in a relatively short amount of time develops very effective treatments for it. Um, And then, of course, the, the tragedy of it is the, like, political and social will to deploy those effectively doesn't necessarily exist or isn't super consistent. Um... So while, like, wealthy people in the United States who are um, infected with HIV or who are at risk for it have a lot of resources to either treat the disease or to prevent getting it, um, it's still, like, a hugely prevalent problem in um, poor communities, in in the African-American community for, like, a bunch of economic and cultural reasons. I'm in Africa as well um, because the resources and the, the sort of international will to make that a serious thing yeah like a a serious focus don't really exist so where does she go um so she continues doing hiv research the rest of the 80s um and in 1990 returns to ucsd to um head up their new center for aids research um and she's gonna keep working there um through the early 2000s. Um, In 1994, she gets elected to the Institute of Medicine for the U.S. National Academies, which is this group of um, medical researchers and medical professionals that offers policy advice to the U.S. government on medical issues. Um, And she's also going to get elected to the Convocation of the Academia um, Sinichia in Taiwan, which is the, like, Taiwanese Academy of Sciences. Um... Uh, While she's at UCSD, she's going to keep focusing on um, gene therapy and in particular is going to help develop a protocol that helps um, suppress HIV in stem cells, which is sort of a huge step forward. That's what I was looking up right now as you were talking of like that. I remember reading that news article. Yeah. Um, So she like continues in a lot of ways to be on the cutting edge of HIV AIDS research. Um, and in 2002, she becomes the chief scientific officer um, at Inusol, which is a pharmaceutical company that makes um, HIV-AIDS medication. Um, the same year, she's going to retire from UCSD, although she still works there um, as a professor emerita doing research. Um, in the early 2000s, she's also going to get named um, the top women scientist of the 1980s by the Institute for Scientific Information. Um, 
And in 2007, she is ranked 32nd on the Daily Telegraph's top 100 living geniuses list, which is not like a radical thing, but is a very kind of cool title to be able to claim. Um, and the really interesting thing is sort of more recently in the late 2000s, um, she's transitioned to the, the focus of Imazol um, from HIV AIDS research to hepatitis C, which is another um, major epidemic disease um, and has worked on sort of refocusing the company's attention on that. And the really exciting thing we get to end it on is like, she's still alive and doing great work and like has not passed away yet. I love that. And she's still working. Good for her. Yeah. I was just trying to think like, I, I feel like um, anything that comes out about HIV right now is only about HIV and not about AIDS. Is mm-hmm. that because the treatment for HIV is such that AIDS doesn't get to the point where it progresses or it's just at a much less devastating level? Yeah, I think it is It is a lot of that. The idea that because AIDS, AIDS is not really treatable in the same way that HIV is because mm-hmm. HIV is like a very identifiable virus, whereas AIDS is like a much broader range of symptoms that manifests differently for different people and is really hard to treat. Okay. And that the, the technology has gotten to the point where like we can treat HIV. Cause really well. it's like, it's not that AIDS kills you. It's that it lets things in that will kill you. Exactly. Cause it so, suppresses your immune system so much that you die of like a cold or yeah. weird cancers that nobody gets or mm-hmm. weird, weird infections and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is why treating HIV um, is sort of the preferred way because it's a much easier, relatively speaking, easier thing to treat. Um, and because the treatments for it are so effective at this point, it's easier to focus sort of on the front end than trying to deal with it once it's developed more fully. What a cool lady. Yeah. Go Flossie. She, and her name is Flossie, which I love. And her name is Flossie, which I feel like is this weird 1960s thing. But. Totally true. Yeah. Yep. I love that. Well, good. That was an up note. Good. It ends with positive change and science and learning. Yeah, which are all very good. The government got its act together on that one, at least, you know? Eventually. It took some time. We haven't gone backwards in our treatment of that particular disease, so we got that going for us. Yeah, for the most part, I think. (laughs) Keep an eye on it, though. You never know. People get shifty. You know what I mean? There's, There's always Mike Pence in Indiana, you know? I heard a good joke about him the other day. Do you ever watch Pete Holmes? I don't think so. He's a stand-up comic, and he was like, is this just me, or does Mike Pence look like a clear gummy bear? (laughs) (laughs) And then he just says a whole bit about that, of like, I have a theory that he's actually a gummy bear. And I was like, this is absurd enough that I can actually laugh at a Mike Pence joke. Because if it's anything too close to the truth, I'm not going to laugh about it. But that one's surreal enough that I'm on board. (laughs) And now that's what I think of. Which helps. It's a little bit of a bomb in these troubled times. Yes, totally. There you go. Cool. Are we done? I think we're done. I'll see we're you next done for week. now? Okay, let's go talk about Game of Thrones in general. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History. Thank you.